Liam Halligan. Nice to see you. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is the show for you if you are sick of people arguing on the internet about subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be experts, we ask the experts. We're here at the world-famous Angel Comedy Club and our amazing expert guest this week is a journalist, economist, broadcaster and the author of Clean Brexit, Liam Halligan. Nice to see you. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you. Liam, so uh, before we get started, one of the things we always like, like to ask our guests is just tell us a little bit about your background. How is it that you are who you are today? Okay, so I was born into a working class family in London. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I'm from an Irish background, which wasn't always easy growing up in the 70s. Um, I, uh, and I'm an economist by training. Um, I was an academic for a while, then I became a newspaper columnist, so I've written a column in the Daily Telegraph um, for about almost 20 years now, a weekly column, uh, and I write columns elsewhere too. I spent quite a lot of time in Russia, both in the 90s as a journalist, uh, and then uh, more recently uh, I do a show three times a week on CNN, so I've got a portfolio career. Uh, I'm not, um, I think a lot of people in British journalism don't quite know where to define me and where to categorize me I, I guess that's the way I like it <laughs> and uh, one of the things we'll be definitely talking a lot about today is Russia tell us a little bit about your time because we've talked about this before yeah. a little bit about your time in Russia what was so that like I first you? went to Russia in the early 90s as a as a, an academic uh, and I ended up working alongside a lot of other much more senior economists um, on the reform program that was going on um, it was obviously for somebody like me interested in economics and politics, it was like a, a history on speed. You know, Francis Fukuyama had just written in 1989, it's the end of history. No, Francis. <laughs> history sped up. Yeah. Uh, and to be in Russia during that period, it was it was a very difficult time for a lot of Russian people. It was under Yegor Gaidar, who you remember, the prime minister at the time. It was a, an era that some people call shock therapy, uh, when the Soviet Union uh, had collapsed just a few years before. Prices went through the roof. Uh, the planned economy didn't work anymore. You had a nascent private sector that was trying to emerge. You had um, a lot of Russian people were very, very scared about what was going to happen. They went from sort of superpower to basket case in just a few months. But then again, you know, you had all that incredible ingenuity, skill uh, and drive that the rest of the world knows that Russians have. So uh, for me as a young man, it was an incredibly interesting time. It made me into a journalist. I ended up as uh, covering Russia for The Economist. Um, and then I came back to the UK in the late 90s when I joined the Financial Times. Um, more recently, uh, from 2010 till 2013, I lived in Russia, but this time uh, uh, working in financial services. Uh, I took a few years out of journalism, though I kept writing my columns um, from about 2008 till 2013, uh, working in an asset management company, and that asset management company focused on um, the post-communist world, so uh, Russia, the broader CIS, Eastern Europe. Uh, and that was a great opportunity for me to really re-engage with that part of the world, which I guess was my first really serious adult research interest was the post-communist world. And it's, uh, I'm mainly a sort of British commentator these days, but I do try and keep a close eye uh, on that region and travel there as often as I can. Well, well, how do you see Russia's role in the world at the moment? Because you read some papers and it's, they're sort of being portrayed almost as the enemy of the West. Do you buy into that narrative? Well, since the Cold War ended, um, we've gone through kind of um, peaks and troughs, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin came in in the late 1990s. Nobody knew who he was, mm. replaced Yeltsin. George Bush Jr. said, I look into his soul, I can see his eyes. Um, there was a sort of real loving um, after 9-11 in 2001. Um, folklore has it, the first call that George Bush got was from Putin saying, you guys want to use our bases in Kazakhstan? You want to access Afghanistan from Russian territory? That's absolutely fine. Uh, and yet 
since then, we've had complete lows, like um, uh, when Russia was seen to have invaded Georgia. Um, okay, um, Shakashvili was the darling of the West. Um, other people in Russia think Shakashvili was just trying to bounce um, NATO into letting Georgia in. Um, of course, Ukraine's been very, very uh, controversial. But again, there are two sides to that story, as serious analysts of the region know. So on the one hand, I think people are completely intrigued by the Russians. You know, that Here in London, there are Russians all over the place, and many of them have done great things and are doing great things and are very, very impressive people. Others seem to be quite, with all respect, sleazy, and where do they get the money from, uh, and so on. So I think Russia is sometimes um, the other, sometimes it's the enemy. Uh, but on the other hand, people feel, but these are the guys, you know, if, if we hadn't have had the Soviets in the Second World War, we would have lost. So there's always been this ambivalence. There's always been this area, air of um, uh, mystique, uh, uh, an intrigue. Uh, I think as Western people, we see Russians as Europeans, so we judge them by higher standards than we may judge people from elsewhere in the world, but we also see them as different to us. Uh, and I think at the moment, uh, it pains me to say because um, uh, you know I, I've uh, spent a lot of my life in Russia and and think highly of the particularly of the Russian people. Uh, it, I think I wouldn't be truthful if I didn't say that we are now at the post Cold War low in terms of relations between. Uh, the Western world, certainly the UK and America uh, and Russia. Maybe you feel the same way. Cold War Two, would you say? Are we there? Um, no, I don't think it's Cold War Two because you know, in the Cold War, you wouldn't be sitting here, right? I I couldn't get a visa and go to to to, to Moscow. Mm. Uh, you wouldn't have hundreds of thousands of Western people living in Moscow as you do. Mm. You know, Europe's biggest city, eighteen odd million people. You wouldn't have uh, BP owning a fifth of uh, uh, Rosneft, which of course is majority owned by the Russian state. You wouldn't have Siemens, uh, Liebherr, uh, L'Oreal, Volkswagen, all these thoroughbred Western companies having huge factory presences in Russia. You wouldn't have tons and tons of Russian kids here at British public schools. So culturally, we are completely enmeshed. We always were, you know, so many leading intellectuals in the West, particularly in Britain and America, are actually Russian emigres over the years. Um, we've always been fascinated with Russian culture. No one could say that you know, Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky aren't at the pinnacle of European cultural achievement, because mm. of course they are, to say nothing of the great poets and novelists. Um, yet, of course, we are in a situation where the West and Russia are, in some senses, on the opposite sides of the war in the civil war in Syria. Mm. Uh, everyone knows who is a, takes any interest at all that Syria is strategically in, incredibly important for the Russians because of the warm water ports, not least at Tartus. Everybody knows that Putin thinks that we should keep Assad where he is, where the West, having previously thought that, now thinks that we should remove Assad. Then again, on the other hand, the West and Russia are on the same side when it comes to ridding the region of ISIL. <laughs> yeah. um, and there has been cooperation when it comes to you know, strikes um, to try and keep that Islamic threat uh, on the back foot. So, and many, you know, many, it's not necessarily an easy thing to say, but many serious analysts of the region and leading Western think tanks and universities think, well, you know, we can't really solve the, Rus the Middle East or even stabilize the Middle East without talking to the Iranians, an emerging regional power broker, of course, historically a, pre a huge presence in the region, and the Syrians. And the only external force who can do that is, is Moscow. Um, and is that, do you think, the only reason that, given the antagonism that we now see, that the West is prepared to continue talking to Russia, despite what this perception that Russia is the other? Is uh, that the reason that we're still talking to Russia, basically? No, I think, I think look, even during the Cold War, we were talking to Russia. We, we obviously talk to Russia a lot more now. You know, mm. Russia's still supplying 40% of Europe's, Western Europe's gas. You know, there's a, there's a hard pipeline now between um, uh, uh, 
northern Russia and Germany, and another one being built. But much um, less true for Britain, isn't it? Britain gets a lot less of its gas. And no, it, it, it does. It does. But, you know, gas is a fungible thing. If, if, <laughs> if that Russian gas wasn't there, then what would happen to the gas that's in Norway that currently comes to the UK? You can, you can, yeah, there is obviously a, a, a Western European dependence on Russian energy. Uh, even at the height of the Cold War, there was never any question uh, or never really any credible threat for the Soviet Union to not pump that gas. The mm. Soviet Union at the time needed the hard currency. Mm. It needs the hard currency less now. Contrary to what we often read in the West, Russia fiscally is an incredibly strong uh, state, uh, has very, very low sovereign debt, and it increasingly is able to ex export its gas east to China. Since sanctions came in, one of the big implications of sanctions, as you know, Constantin, is that Russia and China have got much closer. Uh, you've got pipelines now uh, existing, the ESPO pipeline, the East Siberia Pacific Ocean pipeline uh, from Russia to China, and again, another one being built. So Russia does have options. But I don't think, you know, when the Russian state, even though fiscally it's completely solvent, um, uh, it's still getting about 40 to 45 percent of those state revenues from oil and gas. And a lot of that is from export. Um, so I don't think they're going to stop that and those energy exports anytime soon. Though what's interesting is that the Russians now, as and when they want to, they, they sort of sidle up to OPEC. They're not members of OPEC. But there's been a kind of Saudi-Russian love-in mm. in recent years to try and keep oil prices uh, relatively low um, in order to try and spank the U.S. shale producers. Because below $50, the U.S. shale producer, it just doesn't work. All their leverage falls uh, to pieces. Interesting now that the Saudis have got this IPO coming up. They're selling off their huge oil company, Saudi Aramco. They want a higher oil price. Uh, and I think one of the implications of these airstrikes in Syria, not a big oil provider, of course, but stoking up concern about the Middle East is that we could see oil prices going much higher now with the, both the Russians and the Saudis quite happy to see that happen. What's quite interesting is we, we've seen with the po poisoning of the former Russian spy and we've also seen Russian collusion or suspected Russian collusion in the American election. Why do you think Russia is being so aggressive in those instances at the moment? Is it part of a grand strategy or is it just a warning to the West that they're still very much a global superpower? I remember sitting around in various bars in Moscow in the early 90s and I was offered for sale nuclear weapons, tanks, rifles. <laughs> oh, you get that in Weatherspoons in Croydon as well. <laughs> Nerve agents, you know, it's yeah. like, it's like going, down, going down Leather Lane in Hoban. Um, no, but, but seriously... The fact that there's been a, a, a attack on, on on British soil in the sort of <laughs> cathedral town of Salisbury is very very shocking, and I and and I think Theresa May has played her cards pretty well actually in terms of her response. I think the Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has slightly overplayed his hand. He still thinks he's a newspaper columnist <laughs> rather than a Foreign Secretary. Well, he is. You know? yeah. <laughs> we all know we all know what happens to one's prose close to the deadline. Yeah, <laughs> it starts getting a bit psychedelic. Um, um, but now that clear, clearly that was shocking, and, and the British government had to do something. And it's been a mighty impressive um, so far. If the wheels don't come off, it's been a mighty impressive. Uh, sort of rallying of diplomatic forces. You know, this country's still got some very, very smart diplomats. Um, on the other hand, uh, while it was clearly a Russian-originated substance, we still don't really know who implemented the substance. It may still be a stretch to say this came straight from the Kremlin. So that bit, I don't think anybody can credibly say that is slam-dunk definite. Is that not a case of reputation, though, Liam? Because Russia does have previous on this with Litvinenko. That, that was investigated yeah. and the yeah, conclusions sure. were pretty no, sure. strong. I'm, and I'm not saying the Kremlin didn't do it. Mm. All I'm saying is that um, um, there are people who would want the Kremlin to look as if they've, they'd done it. Mm. Um, you know, we get into incredibly complex issues here. Uh, suffice to say for now that clearly uh, this hasn't done the West's relationship with Russia any good... Uh, at all, uh, and clearly uh, ahead of the World Cup, um, it it wasn't something that um, is going to um, uh, endear people to going to Russia, which is a, which as a sort of citizen of the world is a bit of a shame. Um, 
Uh, I was thinking that um, getting lots of people from Western Europe and the rest of the world to sort of, you know, get through that iron curtain of the mind and actually go to this country um, where, you know, it, it's not it's not as as it's not like it's cracked up to be in many ways. It, 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 the countryside is very beautiful. They're astonishing people. Um, the weather's actually really good in yeah. May and June and really? July. I got it my is. worst yeah, ever yeah. sunstroke in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that could have changed quite a lot of people's perceptions about Russia. Mm. You know, they'd, they'd go to Russia and they'd sort of have a good time uh, because the Russians know how to throw a party and they generally do a pretty good job of organising international uh, 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 events. But this has clearly put all that back. And it'll be very interesting to see in the weeks and months after we record this podcast the extent to which that diplomatic coalition uh, can hold together as and when more and more evidence emerges, as it always does, about what actually happened. Mm. What do you think about the work, their infiltration, as has been suspected, on the American democratic process? Do you think that there was really Russian collusion? And if so, to what degree? Well, anybody that cracks open a history book, um, it's not a conspiracy theory to say that big countries try and influence each other's elections. I mean, <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, it's completely clear that that happens. It's completely clear that America tries to influence elections, Britain tries to influence elections, Russia tries to influence elections. Anyone that doesn't understand that isn't, isn't watching very closely. Uh, it's different to say that this was a particularly concerted attempt in order to try and get Trump elected uh, at the expense of Hillary Clinton. I mean, I happen to think, I'm no great Trump supporter, but I think the reason Hillary Clinton didn't get elected was Hillary Clinton. And if you read you know, her book, What Happened, it's not an autobiography, it's an alibiography. She blames everyone uh, but herself. Um, I don't think there's been credible evidence that, that was, there was any particularly... Um, concerted attempt by the Russians to influence this election any more than they tried to influence any election uh, at any time. But of course, in the current climate, there's a very willing audience uh, for that view, uh, particularly among people who detest Trump. And I understand why lots of people detest Trump. You know, he's, um, His rhetoric and the way he conducts himself is sometimes um, pretty shocking. Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens. What is clear is that Facebook is, uh, and the tech giants in general now, you know, we've gone from sort of leaning in to piss off. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, that, you know, these T-shirted titans were seen as if they could do no wrong. You know, do no evil, I think, was yeah, uh, the Google, Go the yeah, Google yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, you can see why they yeah, needed it yeah, now, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but now, the, you know, people's, the scales are falling from people's eyes. Mm. Um, and it's not just that, you know, my kids... Constantly on social media, uh, you know, me as a journalist, their mum as a journalist, we kind of know that our data gets pimped, and you, 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 you know, you, you mention something on Facebook, and suddenly there's an advert to buy it appearing on your Twitter feed, and it's all a bit woo. -woo. But the idea that your data is then, you know, chopped up and sold and sold and sold and sold again, uh, I think it's starting to alarm people, um, and. These tech giants, they don't pay much tax. They're completely uh, uh, opaque when they pretend to be transparent. They have absolutely enormous market power. Uh, I think Amazon now sells 70% of all books sold in America and 50% of all retail in America. Google's 80% of, of search traffic. I mean, this reminds me, guys, of, again, history. I recently made a documentary about... Um, America in the late 18, 19th century, the 1890s and the 1900s, when eventually Franklin Delaney Roosevelt, a Republican unlike uh, you know, FDR uh, in the 30s, um, he was forced by journalists actually to smash up the trust, to smash up you know, the big oil companies, the big sugar um, trusts, the copper trusts, and actually inject some competition because consumers were getting absolutely shafted. Uh, and I wonder if we aren't going to face a sort of similar trust-busting moment of the tech giants uh, in, in, in the US. That's very um, interesting. And this whole sense that, um, uh, you know, Facebook, uh, whoever's got the most money can pay Facebook 
to micro-target particular voters in particular constituencies to win elections, and then the whole thing that were Facebook taking Russian money and have they been completely straight with um, the security services in the US and the UK, it's all feeding into this idea that, you know, uh, that these guys aren't, you know, the kind of goofy, oh, you know, I made a few billion and I gave it to you know, some, some you know, inoculation program. Yeah, but you've also destroyed our system of government right? yeah. uh, and you don't pay any tax. Yeah. Can you not lean in? Can you just pay some tax, please? Yeah. Uh, so I think people are losing their patience and the whole Russia narrative um, that maybe that they've been facilitating... Um, enhance sort of Russian involvement in Western elections, particularly when those elections are um, leading to people taking office that the sort of liberal intelligentsia don't like. That's really gaining momentum now. Can I just say you're the first Russian who I've ever met who can't actually make tea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we should put this on camera. This is actually... That is disgusting. This, this is what's known in the trade, right, as Nat's piss. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who's going to come on this podcast, <laughs> make sure you get the tea sorted out. This is the best bit of the podcast <laughs> yeah. forever now. Thanks, mate. Oh, we're a vodcast, don't we? We're a vodcast. vodcast. Well, yeah, See, we that's, that's why you're really See, complaining I'm really about. Tech, tech, that's that's literally. you're really complaining about. That's where's my T-shirt? <laughs> that, that we haven't got that in for you. Um, what I was you gonna, what you guys said. No, I remember very well what I was going to say. He's just getting over the criticism yeah, yeah, yeah. of the tea making. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'll be honest with you, that's the only reason we've got you here, yeah, yeah, yeah. Constantine. It's, it's polonium tea, tea man. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's not true. Polonium would taste better. Right, come on. <laughs> so, uh, but you mentioned the, the liberal elite, you mentioned the, yeah. the tech giants, right? One of the interesting things for me is that one of the big criticisms that is now being made of YouTube and, uh, and Facebook is that there is... A, a liberal bias on all these platforms. So, for example, there are people who make, um, who have run channels on YouTube, like Dave Rubin. We talked about him yeah. before. He's finding increasingly that when he interviews conservatives or libertarians, even those videos are being demonetized by YouTube and they're not being pushed. And he's losing people are being randomly unsubscribed from his channel and things like that are happening. So, a lot of the conservative voices in these supposedly public squares, which are actually controlled by the t-shirt wearing. Titans. Titans that you mentioned. They're now saying that actually it's not a public square and is being heavily restricted. What do you make of, of the implications of, the, of these t-shirt wearing giants for mm. freedom of speech and for the, our ability to continue have, to have genuine conversations about politics like these ones? Well, I, I've, I've knocked around in the sort of British media most of my adult life. And, you know, it, it's clear the kind of people who become journalists tend to be sort of more liberal, I want to change the world kind of people. Uh, and, and you know, the people they didn't like at university tend to go off and work for Goldman Sachs or become lawyers. So there's a kind of natural artistic lefty bias to journalism. Uh, and I'm a sort of amalgam of things. I'm fiscally sort of conservative, but socially, I guess, fiscally socially liberal. Um, so I do recognize like American. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do. I do recognize. I do recognize a lot of that. Um, but if if the sort of t-shirted titans, the t-shirted toe rags, I think we should rechristen them. If they think they can use their enormous power to you know piss off the GOP, piss off the British Conservative Party, they need to. I think it's as a Democrat as in a small D Democrat, mm. somebody who believes in democracy, not a member of um, the Democrat Party in the US. Um, as, as somebody who believes in democracy, I think actually it's quite important, even though I, I like small government, that the governments in these big, powerful countries now assert themselves and tell these guys, yeah, you're very clever um, and you've done very well um, and you give lots of money to charity, um, but you're not the government, we're the government. And we are elected, and that is our mandate. And so we're actually going to now, and not for the sake of it, but because you do need to be reined in, we're going to rein you in. So they understand that in a democracy where there's ebb and flow between left and right, you really don't want to upset, unduly go out of your way to upset um, a, a, a one side of the political spectrum, because in a fair fight, they're going to win You know, quite a lot of the time. I'm not saying that you pander to the right in any way, but, you know, conservatives are quite often in office in the US and the UK uh, and across Western Europe, increasingly so, actually. Uh, and I think it would then just be make smart business sense 
to not just be even, not just see to be even-handed if you're if you're controlling the kind of you know the valves and the diodes of of our thought processes because basically you've got a big switch that controls the internet. Um, you would then actually have to be even-handed uh, because it would not make business sense to not be even-handed. I mean, for instance, look, we got the BBC here in the UK, and I'm not the greatest fan of the BBC, but I massively admire it, and make, a lot of British people feel that way, right? Mm. Um, because it does make incredible programs, uh, nature programs and documentaries, really astonishing, you know, world class, sets the standard for the world. Uh, but I think the news is really stodgy. Um, I think there are far too many sort of posh white people um, on the news. There aren't enough um, working class people involved with the news. There's not enough diversity of any kind, gender, race and class. Um, but having said that, even the BBC, which is institutionally kind of left, liberal, guardian reading, and I say that, you know, I'm talking about many of my closest friends. Well, this is confusing to me. Even, even the BBC, you know, it, it, it won't take the piss, right? Most people at the BBC don't like the Tories, but when it comes to an election, they won't take the piss. They'll be even-handed. When it came to the Brexit referendum, they and I speak as a Brexiteer, they were... Not impeccably, but for the most part, they did really well during the referendum. Well, it's interesting to me because you... you, you uh, and that makes sense. But you say that the BBC is inherently lefty. I know no. lots of lefties mm. who say it's incredibly right-wing. No, but that's because you know lots of sort of Corbynista <laughs> nutters. Comedians. Yes, yeah. Comedians. Yeah. I know yeah. lots of comedians, that's yeah, what I'm yeah. saying. You've yeah. got to realise that the, people, the reason people are ultra-left-wing is because they don't earn enough to pay tax. Or, or, <laughs> or, or because they've got... You know, an old man with a trust fund in yeah. Liechtenstein, and they can pretend that they don't care about money. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that, that is <laughs> yeah. absolutely There's infuriating well. <laughs> to me. But what I find interesting is with these, going back to the, that is so true. Yeah. Going back to Should these, we name names? Yeah, let's name them. Name and shame. Name and shame. They go to their posh shops where they pay money in order to look like they don't have money. <laughs> Have you noticed that is as well? It, you know, these, these ripped jeans, they're expensive. Yeah, you know? yeah, 200 quid for a pair of... Anyway, we're sounding old now. Okay, but... Uh, well, that's because we are old now, yeah, that's why. Yeah, that is true. The time is rapidly. But uh, just to go back to the tech chance, I think there is a unification between left and right where we're all getting a little bit pissed off that these people aren't paying tax. Oh, big big time, big time. And uh, it's not just that they're not paying tax, so that is a big part of it. It's also that then monopoly power is just taking out a lot of retail variation and smaller businesses. And also, you know, so I, I'm an author, right? I write books, yeah? It is not fair that these bastards just basically scan my book and put it on the internet and don't take it down. I, I don't, you don't sell many books these days. Uh, unless it's a really sort of salacious current affairs book, because everybody knows within three weeks they can download a PDF. Mm. So if you read, there's a wonderful book that I'd recommend to you guys and to all, all, all viewers. Uh, it's called Move Fast and Break Things by Jonathan Taplin. I wrote a review about it recently on a website called Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, as in not part of the herd. Ah. Un yeah. Unheard.com, unheard where I, I write a sort of alternative weekly column, not my Telegraph column, more of a kind of... Um, sort of a laying back column rather than a sitting at my desk column. Uh, and I wrote a review of, of this book, and it really is an amazing book. So Jonathan Taplin was a music producer. He worked with some of the greats, including Bob Dylan. And he wrote a book, and it was over a year ago now, a long time before all this tech giant stuff, this discontent um, blew up, predicting the lot, because these guys have just taken away the living of so many artists and musicians and authors um, and it cannot be right that you can spend a huge amount of time producing content. You know, we're all content providers. We're writers, we're comedians, whatever we are. All we have is our creativity. And you know, it's pathetic, I know, but this is what we do. Uh, <laughs> it's not fair if somebody can just reproduce it and distribute it and get advertising around the distribution of your creative output and not pay you. Mm. And that's basically what's happening. And this is another way that society is going to get really upset with these guys because when the creative people start getting upset and they're starting to get upset now that um uh, and jonathan taplin really puts his finger on that move fast and break things was uh, zuckerberg's phrase in the early days of facebook if we're not moving fast and breaking things we're not moving fast enough you know a really laudable uh, idea you know be disruptive um innovate create fantastic 
But now they really are breaking things. They're breaking the ability of, of artistic people to make money from their music and from their, from their writing. Uh, and so we end up with, you know, there's so much less choice in music. The internet hasn't given us choice than when I was a kid. It's so hard to be an alternative uh, artist now, an alternative musician, because there's just a few little songs that get picked by somebody in a room somewhere, and they're the ones that get hammered on Facebook and, and Google and go everywhere and go viral. And nothing else gets a look in, and nothing else can make a living because because it's just reproduced on the internet, and, and the tech giants don't do anything to take down stuff when copyright's clearly being broken, left, right, and center. Well, let's talk about your book, uh, mm. Clean Brexit. Uh, tell us a little bit about mm. what made you write it and well, what, what was the message you wanted to send to the world it, with it? it? It's, you know, quite a lot of the columns I write are sort of, people often call them sort of fire-breathing and, and very polemical and all the rest of it. Uh, but I have got the, inside me, there's a sort of inner nerd. Um, <laughs> and this was my inner nerd coming to the fore. Um, so I was... Um, I was very much against the UK joining the single currency. Uh, there was a big debate about that in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, and I wrote a lot of the time, I think the single currency will eventually collapse, I don't think it will work. And of course, a lot of my very liberal write-on friends said, oh, you horrible person, why don't you want to join the single currency? You, you must be a Nazi or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've, we've heard that counter-argument <laughs> no, no, many no, that times. That was happening yeah, back then yeah, already? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. No, no, I would comply. No, I would retort. I've just read a lot about the history of currency unions um, and the fact that they always split up, unless there's sort of lots and lots of political union, which was never going to happen in Europe. So I was always a sort of emu sceptic person, not that I didn't like birds with feathers, <laughs> yeah. uh, EMU's European Monetary Union. I was always sceptical of the project of European Monetary Union, and I always felt, and I wrote this back in the late 90s uh, many times, that it would lead to you know, the, the European Union, which I broadly supported, the idea of free trade, with, well, broadly free trade, and doing stuff together. I, I thought single currency would make it incoherent. Uh, but I was always a supporter of Britain on balance staying within the EU. But then you had the Treaty of Lisbon, you had the Treaty of Nice, these incredibly centralizing treaties, and you had countries um, voting against them and basically being ignored by mm. Brussels and told to vote again. And people, <laughs> so it's, the, the EU, I think, in the last 10 years started to become anti-democratic, not just undemocratic, but anti-democratic. Uh, and I started to get increasingly upset that Britain was trying to negotiate a new model of doing things looser more democratic uh, collaborating and cooperating without trying to subsume more and more power away from local politicians here in the UK and the, the tipping point for me was when David Cameron tried to renegotiate with the European Union you'll remember it back in early 2016 and they just basically said you know piss off we're not gonna <laughs> we're, we're not gonna change it change it in any way uh, and Cameron knew, I think, then that he had a fight on his hands if he was going to win this referendum. Mm. Um, so it was at that point that I decided I would actually argue for Britain to leave the European Union. Uh, and I, I did a huge amount of work researching it, researching the trade deals that the European Union had done, the trade deals that it hadn't done, the trade deals that Britain was likely to be able to do outside of the European Union. Um, uh, and I decided in the end... Um, as the referendum approached, there was so much nonsense being spoken on the mainstream media. I don't think people, well, most people weren't deliberately lying, but lots of things were being said that were just factually wrong um, about our relationship with the rest of the world, about our relationship with Europe, that I got together with another economist and we wrote a, a sort of fast-paced um, and accessible but really quite detailed book with lots of footnotes about the history of the European Union uh, and about the best way, as we saw it, to negotiate our exit. So you, so you think Brexit will broadly be a positive thing for this I country? I think it will be broadly a positive. I'm afraid I do. Strike, strike me down. Uh, I do. Uh, I think it. I think the single mar our membership of what we call the single market is uh, the benefits are massively uh, overstated. There's no single market in services, and we're of course a service superpower. Um, I think the benefits of being inside the customs union. Um, are massively overstated. 
being in the customs union means that our consumers pay far, far more for all imports from outside the European Union. It means we can't cut trade deals with the rest of the world outside the European Union. I mean, I remember when we joined what was called the European Economic Community, I was about five years old. Um, back then, it was 40% of the world, yeah, even though it only had, you know, nine countries when we joined. Um, now it's, when we leave, it will be 15% of the world economy, even though it will have 27 countries. So the growth is beyond Europe now. Uh, the, pop the world population is beyond Europe. The UK is a European country, obviously, um, but it really has a lot of very, very interesting cultural and practical and logistical connections with the rest of the world. Uh, and I think it's going to be much better for our kids and our grandkids if we spend a lot more of our time, effort, diplomatic and commercial energy connecting to and uh, trading with the rest of the world rather than the European Union. We will always trade with the European Union, um, but the sense has been created that if we're not in the European Union, we won't trade with the European Union. Um, really? Uh, America does over $300 billion of trade a year with the European Union from outside the European Union. China does huge amounts of trade with the European Union, as does Japan, from outside the European Union. So I felt there were real scare tactics going on. Some of the stuff coming out of the British Treasury uh, and the Bank of England and other sort of international organizations like the OECD, a sort of posh Western think tank in France. I mean, I knew as an economist what they were saying was utter, utter nonsense and deliberately designed to try and frighten the British people into uh, voting to stay inside the European Union. Uh, but the European Union is basically a protectionist club. Big companies like it. That's why they pour so much money into publicity to support it. Uh, small companies where the real growth and energy is in this country tend not to like the European Union. Um, and then the British people, in their wisdom, even though they were called thick and stupid and racist mm. and xenophobic, uh, they voted the way they voted. And I happen to think um, that was an astonishing outcome. It is difficult to um, go through the process of Brexit. All the complaints now are about the process of Brexit, the EU or Brussels in particular, a bunch of unelected, um, you know, not particularly clever people, um, very unimpressive, a lot of these um, sort of life civil servants in Brussels. They're making it as difficult as they possibly can. Uh, a lot of the media in the UK doesn't want it to happen, so it's making it sound as difficult as it possibly can. And yet still, despite sort of ultra-Remainers trying to reverse the biggest act of democracy in British history... The polls show that, you know, a majority of people still want to leave. I think it will be absolutely fine. I think it will be absolutely fine. And I think there will be other... My hope is not that the European Union suffers in any way. My hope is that a very big economy like the UK leaving and making a success of, of being outside the European Union while still trading with the European Union doesn't lead to the European Union getting weaker, but it convinces people that the European Union should be looser uh, and more democratic uh, and less kind of dirigist and always pushing for the sort of super-state status. Well, now, that's interesting that you're talking about scare stories because I've been reading, you know, you read the, I read the papers a lot and you always hear in the papers, you know, whether it's from the T Times, the Telegraph or from the Guardian, you know, that these banks are going to be leaving. We are famously, that's where we generate a lot of our tax income from. Can you see these big banks leaving the no, city I mean, of London? It's complete nonsense. Lloyd Blankfein, the, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, he's sort of texting, uh, tweeting, oh, you know, I'll be spending less time in London. Why the fuck are you building your European headquarters in Farringdon, mate? Yeah. <laughs> and he's come out in the last couple of days. It's got almost no publicity saying, oh, yeah, well, maybe we'll stay in London. Yeah, of course you'll bloody stay in London because it's the financial capital of the world. Certainly it's one of the top two financial capitals of the world, completely irrefutably. London isn't competing with Frankfurt or Paris. Frankfurt's barely in the top 20 financial cities in the world. Paris is barely in the top 30. London's competing with Singapore... Um, and New York, yeah? Uh, 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 and it's the idea that the world's major banks won't want to be in London is just complete nonsense. London is even the banking capital of the Eurozone, right? And if you listen to you know, people like Wolfgang Schauble, who's the former 
German finance minister, incredibly financially literate bloke, a finance minister who actually knows about finance, a rare, <laughs> a rare, a rare, a rare thing. Um, yeah, he was saying at the time, barely reported, look, we really don't want to cut off from London because most German companies, big German companies, when they want to raise money and sell bonds, they do it in London. <laughs> so th it was always nonsense. And I'm afraid that was what kind of pissed me off enough to write the book because I kept listening to the television. And I kept hearing on the radio stuff that was being spurted out from all the big corporate bodies in the UK, the CBI and, and so on saying that all this woe was going to happen. And I just knew common sense was that it was nonsense. I was going to say, so what, what do you think about the Brexit campaign? Because now there was a, I don't know if you saw, there was an article in the, in the Observer yesterday that, that, you know, some of the funds weren't being used or, you know, there was slight misappropriation of funds and all the rest of it. You know, there was a 350 million for the NHS, which turns out somewhat of a lie. The fact really? For, we haven't left yet. Well, oh, right. okay, fair enough. But no, but this is my point, right? Yeah. Oh, it's a lie. No, it isn't. When we leave, it is a fact that we won't pay £10 billion a year to the EU. Yeah. And, okay, so what do you want to do with that £10 billion? In fact, it, will be, it would have been more now because the, the bill's going up. So we can spend that money on the NHS if we want to. It's not a lie. We haven't left. Well, th this is We are still paying every year. And we will still pay every year during the transition period as some you know i was the guy who back in 2016 wrote the pamphlet that said we need a transition period uh because the eu funding framework is a seven-year thing that goes all the way to 2020 so in order to make the negotiation work let's keep paying to 2020 and call it a transition period to keep everybody calm that's ultimately what happened we were always going to keep paying uh until the transition period and when we stop paying, then we'll have money that we're not paying to Europe because we've been the second biggest net contributor to, to the EU since we entered. Uh, and then we can spend that money on other things. Well, this is an interesting point for me as an immigrant in this country. One of the things that we've discussed with several guests already is this idea that uh, during the campaign, the allegation was made, and you referred to it, that anyone who votes for Brexit or most people who vote for Brexit do yeah. so because they're racist or xenophobic. Yeah. How much of... The conversation has become which what you just picked up on, which is sloganized. Essentially, it's a fact-free conversation, and we're just talking about well, well, you're racist yeah, or no, you're stupid. No, indeed, or, there was yeah. there have been sort of fact-free elements on both sides, and I think maybe there's been some financial impropriety on both sides. I I wasn't involved in the. I mean, I could have been involved with <laughs> the leave side if I wanted to, but I didn't. You know, I wanted to be an independent person, just saying uh, what I thought. Um, um, I think it did become quite fact-free. There was sloganizing, but some of us in the media and our columns and our broadcasts were trying to be a bit more high-fibre. And I've often found myself during the referendum, people literally stopping me in the street and emailing me out, hundreds of emails from people. Oh, oh, can you just explain that to me? I've been doing my research. And, you know, ordinary punters did a huge amount of work to try and understand what was going on. And I think a lot of the British media did lapse into just punch and Judy debates. Um, but I think there were some people on both sides and people on neither side who were trying to, to give the facts. I was disappointed, though, in the, in the British government, in Cameron's government. Um, you know, it, it has to be recorded because it's true and it's outrageous that the British government two days before we have this thing called PERDA where the government is allowed to, isn't allowed to spend any more government money um, on a referendum or an or a election. And two days before that, the British government used taxpayers' money, £9 million, to distribute a completely overwhelmingly pro-Remain information leaflet. Uh, and that £9 million didn't then count to the, the, the state money which the Remain side got, which was meant to be even with the Leave side. So that was really, really, uh, at best, it was it was sly. Um, it was it was deeply unfair. But did you have people calling you racist or xenophobic? All the time. All the time. What was that like? Oh, it's it's obviously very 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 distressing. I'm I am, you know, I'm as somebody who grew up with a name like Liam Halligan when Britain and Ireland were basically at war, and you know. And back then, the UK was a lot less tolerant than it is now. Mm. You know, my, my, my family, are, you know, my father's still around. Um, 
grew up in the west of Ireland, speaking Gaelic. You know, he, he, in his heart, he's very grateful to the UK. He was able to come here and make a living that he couldn't have made in rural Ireland <laughs> back in the day. So I'm not complaining, um, but it isn't nice when you are absolutely of immigrant stock yourself and you've tried to, you know, make your way in a society uh, and bring other people up behind you. Um, and grew up in an incredibly multicultural community, uh, as, as I did, uh, in, in, in northwest London. It's horrible. To, I mean, it's just a character assassination, isn't it? It's just a smear. And from it's, people who don't pathetic. know you personally, yeah, they've and, never seen you... Yeah, and the people who tend to accuse other people of race, racism in this country tend to be people who grew up in a sort of all-white environment and didn't meet a sort of black person until they went to Oxford, you know. I mean, it's really, it's outrageous to call someone like me that with the background that I have. Um, but, you know, that's that's the way it is. When people have sensed that you know more than they do and <laughs> you, you've done your research, they'll try and character assassinate you to discredit you. I, I think part of the problem with the Brexit movement, for instance, my father, who is, he married an immigrant, my mother's Latin American, and he's very much pro-Brexit, and he will sit down with people and explain why. I think what didn't help with Brexit is the fact you have people like Katie Hopkins coming out in support of it, yeah. and immediately you have a person like that, or, you know, Farage coming out and fronting yeah. it, and immediately that tarnishes what is potentially... No, I, I agree, I agree, and, um, you know, without... UKIP winning 13% of the vote, as they did um, in the 2015 election, without UKIP having won the European elections in 2014, there wouldn't have been a referendum. Ca Cameron gave a referendum because he knew that UKIP were going to just wipe out a lot of... A lot of um, but they were going to remake the electoral map. I mean, UKIP, they didn't... They got one seat in the 2015 uh, general election, but they came second in about 160 seats. No, oh, no, they got absolutely, something like 3 million votes. Absolutely, absolutely astonishing. They got 13% of the vote mm. in the 2015 general election. So, yeah, Farage rightly, yeah, has his footnote in history, rightly. Uh, and you've got to give the guy credit for that. Uh, on the other hand, some of things he says I really don't approve of, you know, standing in front of a poster full of people, you know, with dark complexions, sort of breaking point. My stomach turned. That was a complete mistake. I think a lot of what Leave EU did, as opposed to Vote Leave, so Vote Leave was the official campaign, Leave EU was the sort of Farage guys who were a lot more hardline. I think Leave EU, you know, did they subtract votes? I think Farage being around a lot subtracted votes. I think if Farage had gone on holiday three months before the referendum, then you'd have got a bigger um, majority in favour of Brexit. Because Farage didn't convince anybody who was in two minds. Um, no mm. moderate is going to look at Farage and think, oh, I agree with you. And yet, <laughs> and yet, and yet Farage was always the guy put up in the debates, or mm. nearly always, as mm. the kind of pro-Brexit voice, mm. which I thought was wrong. Mm. There are many, many moderate people who are pro-Brexit. You know, And I think Gisela Stewart, who viewers may not know, she really came to the fore. So this is a German woman, right, mm. from the Labour Party mm. with a massive record on human rights uh, who negotiated the UK's um, side during the EU constitution, a totally signed-up Europhile, and she was Brexit because she thought the EU had become overbearing. And when she was on the, the public debates and on the television representing the, the Brexit side, you know, the polls went wild because you had a lot of middle-aged people, moderate people, particularly moderate moderate women, saying, she's amazing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Whereas if it's always Farage's Brexit, people are thinking, well, I can see all these reasons for Brexit and I've done my reading and all that, that but I just think Farage is turning me off, so I'm going to stick with Remain. So well, I actually think Farage was a net subtract. I completely, I know the guy, you know, I congratulate him for getting the referendum, absolutely. And I congratulate him for saying what he b believes and campaigning. He's not a racist. You know, these aren't guys aren't the BNP. They don't want to deport people. On You know, th there are many sort of reasonable people in, in UKIP, people I know quite well. I'm not a UKIP supporter because I think they go a little bit too far uh, in, many, in many areas. Uh, and I don't think they're kind of global enough in their outlook. Uh, but I think during the referendum, if Farage had gone on holiday then the, 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 the majority in favour of Brexit would have been more like 60-40. No, I completely agree with you because... The, the <laughs> yeah. wow. 
because well, uh, actually, interestingly, I'm going to say you're completely. Right. <laughs> but but no, this is it. I I really hate this 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 sort of you know mantra that Brexit equals racism. It's stupid oh, it's and it's wrong and it's totally, puerile and it's pathetic. Totally, totally. And if it had actually been more people like yourself coming out and going, look, this is why I vote Brexit. A B C D E and F. I'd be like. Okay, I'll go away and I'll have a think about yeah. it. The fact you just get someone like Katie Hopkins wheeled out, and the mm. moment she could argue that white is, uh, you know, is, is you know, white is white, and I'd still be like, mm, I'm not sure if yeah. white really is white, Katie, yeah. considering we need a final solution <laughs> on Muslims. Do you see what I mean? But mad. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, both Francis and I voted to remain. Uh, but actually, for both, well, certainly for me, I don't want to speak for Francis. It was a quite a wake-up moment, actually. Yeah. Both Brexit and Trump, this realization that maybe the liberal bubble that I'd been living in didn't have everything right. Uh, but actually, I mean, you it doesn't mean though that all people who voted Brexit support Trump, which is another. No, I didn't which, mean. To which is another, you know, little segue that is. I mean, look, since we've had this referendum, mm. there has been a constant drumbeat of negativity. There are people in this country who are determined to reverse this referendum. Uh, a lot of them are sitting at taxpayers' expense, unelected, in that ermine-clad chamber of, of, of Remain, which is the House of Lords. <laughs> and, 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 and nothing could be more damaging for British democracy. You had an astonishing... Um, almost sort of democratic uprising from regions of the UK um, um, where unexpectedly they voted for Brexit. And if, if we try and sort of lawyer our way out of that and, and, and stitch up the results so people don't get to leave the European Union, and that means leaving the single market, and that means leaving the customs union. These are the two main legal structures of the European Union. Then I'm not going to sit here, and I wouldn't go on television or write in my newspaper columns that there's going to be civil unrest. Mm. Um, well, you wouldn't be surprised, would you? I'm not. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to predict that. Um, but what I am going to say is that you will get millions of British people who will never vote again, mm. and will always be upset that their vote has been erased. You know, people who shop at Lidl, yeah, their vote is just as important as people who shop at Waitrose. People who are plumbers and roofers, yeah, are just as important as people, you know, who got a nice degree from a sort of mid-ranking university uh, and work at a law firm. It's one person, one vote. It's called democracy. If you don't like it, go to North Korea. I was going to insult you by saying go to Russia. Or <laughs> <laughs> Venezuela, where my mum's from. <laughs> Liam and I have a long-running thing about Russia. But you, I, I feel about Britain, actually, much like you feel about Russia. It's a country that's that I've I've been privileged to live in. I feel very grateful for, for yeah, the Yeah, and I'm sure you go back to, you go back to Russia mm. and you hear a lot of negativity about Britain mm. and you say, well, okay, that's true, but actually... Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm similar with Russia because yeah. I know Russia... You know, personally, a lot more than most British people do, just as you clearly know Britain sure. incredibly well now, having lived here for so long uh, and being sort of so culturally immersed than most people living in Russia. And, you know, you probably, you know, when you go home, you know, if you if you if you mix in in certain circles, what you say about the UK could be quite unpopular. Mm. But, you know, it's true. Sure. Right. And so you have to say it. I mean, you could wimp out and not say it. Mm. Um, and. To a much lesser degree, but there's some similarity with me. When I hear things like, um, you know, I s spent a lot of my life sort of over the years studying the Russian economy. That was what I really specialised in. And when I hear things like, oh, it's all oil and gas, I, I just have to say, well, it isn't actually. 18% of GDP is oil and gas. <laughs> yeah. The service sector is twice as big as the oil and gas sector. Because if you don't say that, then... I mean, what's the point? Well, Liam, just to finish up on Brexit, what, what I, I wanted to say, first yeah. of all, as, as an immigrant here, one of the things that really pissed me off about the Brexit campaign was this idea that British people are racist xenophobes. And even though I voted Remain, that there was nothing that annoyed me more than that because I've lived in this country for a yeah. very long time. And Britain is one of the most tolerant countries. Not well, just you're a Russian, he's Venezuelan, and I'm a plastic paddy, and we're sitting here <laughs> doing our stuff and saying what we want. Right. Um, 
we've made a decent living, our families have made decent livings, and, and we love Britain, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. So here's the, here's the question. You've Britain doesn't always love us. <laughs> 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 but you've made a very solid case for why economically uh, Brexit yeah. is a good thing. But is not the legacy of Brexit the social lack of cohesion and the social conflict that we now find ourselves in, where people are, after the referendum, going, if you voted for Brexit, unfriend me, uh, or <coughs> I'm never speaking to you again, literally families being torn apart by mm. the vote, things like that. Is that not it also It depends. Part it's of all it? in our hands, Constantine. It depends how we handle it. I mean, mm. do we grow up and realize that people can, you know, it's completely reasonable to have in a, in a close election to come down on different sides? Um, will we use the newfound freedoms that we have things we can't really do effectively inside the European Union, like set our taxation the way we want to, uh, like do regional policy the way we want to, have policy towards our farms, our fishing communities, our energy markets. There's lots of ways that the EU has constrained this country's domestic policy making. If we respond to these new freedoms uh, in a way that's inclusive, um, in a way that rebalances the UK economy, a way from just London and the southeast towards the regions more. I mean, a lot of my book with Gerard Lyons, Clean Brexit, is about what we can do once we've left. The whole of the back half of it, actually, uh, and a big thing that we emphasise is regional policy uh, outside the European Union. And I certainly hope that we do really rebalance this country. We have a tremendous opportunity to build, um, well, not just sort of try and empower alternative growth centres apart from London and the South East. You know, let's link up those northern cities, those great cities known around the world for creativity, ingenuity. You know, Liverpool, cultural capital of popular music. Manchester, you know, one of the main sources of the Industrial Revolution. These are incredible places and people want to invest there. People want to be associated with them. They've got fantastic universities. They've got a lot of human capital. They've been on their uppers kind of in the last generation or two. But, you know, let's, let's build international airports there. Let's bring in investment from around the world. Let's project those cities around the world. And let's try and encourage more of our young people to live in those cities rather than thinking that you have to come to London to make a success of yourself. No, you don't. Germany's not like that. It's not like you have to go to Berlin to make a success for yourself. Well, there's Frankfurt, there's Munich, there are regional powerhouses. The UK needs to become a much more regional country, not all about London and the South East. Isn't it fantastic to have London, you know, one of the world cities in our country? Isn't it great? But I think it's too much we've overemphasized London at the expense of these other countries, uh, these other parts of the country. And outside the European Union, I think we've got a major chance to put that right. Liam, but you're, you're talking at a very cerebral level. You're obviously a very knowledgeable, very intelligent guy, and we're very grateful to have you here. But that's There's a buck coming. <laughs> yeah, there is. There, there is, is a buck coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only buck actually has nothing to do with you is that these conversations are not being had at that cerebral level. They're being had on a, on a kind of Facebook, you're racist, you're xenophobe, you're this, you're that, don't ever speak to me again kind of mm. level. And that, that, is because, that, that is because a lot of people are still hoping that this thing can be reversed. Mm. And, you know... If you call people racist enough, we can, we yeah, can yeah, have another if, referendum. If we discredit this process enough, mm. then people are going to want to reverse it. If we can spread enough scare stories about how the economy is going to collapse and there's this cliff edge and you know, Goldman Sachs are going to leave and Deutsche Bank are going to leave, then maybe people will be scared and we can have another referendum. You know, Vince Cable wants another referendum because he didn't agree with the first one. <laughs> you know, this is a guy who told his own uh, party conference uh, in September 2016 after the referendum that I really don't think we can insult the electorate by having another referendum. And that was on the record. It was recorded. And yet suddenly... He, he changes his mind and thinks, oh, of course we need another referendum because he's trying to you know, re, uh, remake uh, his party. And the Lib Dems, since they've said that, they've gone nowhere in the polls. I mean, this is a great party. I've got a real soft spot for the Lib Dems. We need the Lib Dems in British politics. Mm. But they went to the electorate in 2017 with this, we're going to reverse Brexit. And they got the lowest result in their history. The SNP went to the, the electorate in Scotland with, we're going to reverse Brexit. And they, and they lost a third of their seats, you know? 
I mean, come on, it's these cloying elites thinking that they can reverse Brexit because it kind of undermines their sensibilities. They've got to understand that people they don't who voted against them are just as important as they are when it comes to the ballot box. That's what democracy is about. And we they have to get on with it and we have to make the best of it. People who voted leave and have a vision of how good it could be and people who voted remain uh, and who are perhaps a little bit, bit more, um, uh, you know, need to be uh, a bit, little bit less enthusiastic. But the real key to this whole thing is that there is a big chunk of people who voted Remain, yeah, in good faith, many of whom I love, uh, you know, literally members of my closest family, and they realise, okay, um, it's not didn't go the way I wanted to go, but what would it be like if every time we have some sort of a democratic situation, we contest the result to, for years and years in the future? Mm. Well, this is it. What we have is chaos, which is essentially what is happening now. I mean, we, if you think about it, I'm, I've never voted Conservative. I vote Labour. But I, I would never dream once Theresa May got in of demanding a recount. I just wouldn't because, frankly... Not, not unless there was absolute transgression. I yeah. mean, we have had electoral fraud in this country. Yeah. I mean, there was a famous case in, in Blackburn uh, a few years ago. If there's electoral fraud, of course it's got to be rooted out. Um, uh, 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 but of but of course, an election is different to a referendum in that an election is part of a natural cycle. Um, and, and Alistair Campbell often says, oh, you know, when you lose the election, you don't stop campaigning. No, Alistair, because that's an election. <laughs> yeah? And this is a referendum. And Parliament voted by six to one for the bill to hold a referendum in early 2016 to give this vote to the British people. And to now try and reverse that, and the, the point about Brexit is that then once we've Brexited, p Parliament becomes a lot more powerful because all these laws come back to Parliament. So you have people in Parliament saying, well, you said, you know, we wanted, you wanted Parliament to be powerful. Yeah, I do. After Brexit, Parliament will have a lot more power. You're now trying to exert Parliament's rights to do something to reverse Brexit that makes it less powerful. Well, Liam, <laughs> there's only one counter argument that's not answered by that, which is would Leave not be doing the same thing right now if you'd lost? No, why would they? Well, I, no, you'd have to you'd have to build up. Uh, I mean, leave leave waited like forty years. You know, we joined we joined the EU. You probably don't know this. We joined the, the European Community without a referendum. Mm. We went in in seventy three by diktat. That was uh, Ted Heath. Um, well, you don't think Nigel Farage will be out it, now it campaigning only, to reverse? It was, only, it was only two years after. It was only two years after that we actually had a referendum in nineteen seventy five. But my point is, you don't think Nigel Farage would be out on the streets now campaigning for a second referendum if he'd lost? No, I don't think. I don't think the body politic would have given him a second referendum. I mean, look at look what's happening in uh, a lot of the Remainers who want a second, the ultra Remainers who want a second referendum. They're not calling for a second referendum on Scottish uh, um, independence, are they? Because broadly, they're people who want to keep the EU, the UK together you have to be grown up about this you're going to get into some kind of banana republic type situation where it just becomes tribal um or a quebec style situation where there's a never ending. look britain trades on its legal stability right our mm. comparative advantage in the world is if you come to our courts right it doesn't matter who you are you're going to get a fair hearing right the british government isn't going to be able to rig the courts mm. yeah that is what we have We've built that up over centuries of not always doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, there is a sense now, and it's not 100% guaranteed, but you're going to get a fair hearing. Mm. We sell our debt to the rest of the world. We need a stable currency. If Britain becomes so unstable that we're sort of, we voted to leave the European Union, and then before we vote to leave the European Union, we vote to stay in the European Union. And then what are the EU going to do? Are they going to let us... Uh, come back in but not be in the euro they're going to let us have the rebate that we negotiated all those years ago it's going to be absolute carnage and you know what our exports our trade with the european union is about 10 percent of gdp right about 10 percent of gdp let's 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 say worst case scenario worst case scenario that our trade with the eu like collapses by 10 percent yeah that's like 1% over GDP over many years. It's th these, this is rounding error stuff. Now, of course, whether in the EU or not is important to our identity. But I would say, actually, while British people tend to love 
continental Europe. Uh, we also, almost uniquely in Europe, have astonishing connections with the rest of the world. You think about something very close to my heart, because a lot of the families I, I grew up with were Indian families, right? And families had come over from the Caribbean. My best friends in the world, um, those people I grew up with. Yet the connections we have with the Indian subcontinent, the connections we have with Australasia, the incredible connection we have with the United States. No one else has these connections. The English language, the fact that there are all these mad Brits all working all over the world, running companies and building companies. Um, we aren't a normal European country. We have, I wouldn't say bigger, broader horizons. We have more global horizons than a lot of those countries. And I think a lot of British people um, whether they were highly educated or not, often even when they weren't, sense that, sense that the growth is outside of Europe now. Europe's been the slowest growing continent in the world, apart from Antarctica, for most, <laughs> for most of the last 20, uh, for, and it's close, uh, uh, for most of the last 20 years. And I think a lot of people's sense is that it's, yes, we'll keep trading with Europe, but not at the expense of trading more with the rest of the world. All right, listen, we're running out of time. I think that's a perfect place to, to perfect. end it. Well, 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 thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, Liam. Uh, tell us your uh, Twitter. Uh, at Liam Halligan. But not that complicated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and also as well, your book is called Clean Brexit. My book's called Clean Brexit. My podcast is called Lend Me Your Ear. And, and what kind of stuff do you talk about in the podcast? I tend to, I tend to talk to... I tend to have a sort of detailed policy discussions. So rec people I've recently spoke to... Um, I spoke to um, uh, David Davis, the Brexit mm. Secretary. Uh, I spoke to an incredible economist, Nobel-winning economist called Amartya Sen. I spoke to Richard Thaler, who's um, the guy that invented behavioral economics. Uh, he's the current Nobel uh, laureate. I just spoke to this incredible guy on my podcast called Peter Platzer, um, who has created, he's got a huge network of satellites in space. Uh, and he sells the data that they collect on things like uh, the weather uh, and ship movements uh, to commercial companies. Really incredible guy. Amazing. Wow. So uh, lend me your ear. Lend me your ear. Uh, Liam Halligan at Liam Halligan. I'm Constantine Kisson at Constantine Kisson. And I'm Francis Foster at Failing Human. Um, and uh, if you, by the way, if you've enjoyed this great episode, please, please, please follow us on Instagram and at Twitter, at TriggerPod. And also, please, if you've enjoyed it, leave us a rating, uh, five stars, please. And also, <laughs> um, leave a nice comment underneath, and also subscribe and tell a friend. But thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope to see you next week. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.